Welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Boom, boom, boom. It's going to be volume two of the Q&A. Obviously, you just got a podcast yesterday, and here we go. Following up, we're going to work through these Q&As one by one, and I don't know, I called it knock and awe just because you weren't expecting podcasts to just come volleying in, but that's what I have to do. We, we've taken a break, and now we got to make up ground and get back we got to get back to where we were just like if you don't work out for a while you still got to get back to that baseline so we got to cover ground cover ground fast so i'm going to pick up with question here from looks like gains that i believe that's how i say it but the question here is best thing to do to keep your shoulders healthy for archery uh, any exercises, stretches that you recommend for keeping them in working order? That is an awesome question and not one that I'm totally qualified to answer from a, I don't know, from a PT point of view or a medical point of view. Be way better having someone that's a professional like my buddy Sam Pogue or Peter Atia, someone like that would be awesome. Um, but what I will tell you is what I do for mine and mine are definitely at the tail end of, uh, having some, some issues, I guess my shoulder that I had repaired is actually in the process right now of breaking down again. Um, it's possible that I did something during an activity that involved i'm trying to think back of what could have possibly done it but it definitely could have been something relating to holding on to an inner tube on a boat but it does look like i've torn my shoulder again that i uh had fixed before and then also my right shoulder is also torn so i have torn labrums on both sides again uh so what i'll tell you is I don't know it seems like for archery there's obviously wear and tear with shoulders improper technique is one of the things that really promotes aggravation more than anything and honestly the style of archery and the type of technique and form that I teach helps me with that because what kills me worse than anything in relation to when I really struggle with shoulder pain and uh and then kind of promoting shoulder injury i guess or i don't know antagonizing my injury is when i try to shoot improper draw length so every time i have to do bow builds i literally try to cram all those bow builds into a season to where i'm building all these different draw lengths during a certain time of year so that way i'm isolating my painful time um and if i shoot a draw length that's too short it's it's really murderous 
on a torn labrum, mainly because the the place that mine is torn, when I have to compress my shoulder back to shoot those shorter draw lengths, or if I have to compress my shoulder back and then bend my front arm a little bit um, for those shorter draws, it puts a lot of pressure on on where my injuries have been. So learning to shoot your bow where you're not compressing your scapula back against the spine and packing your shoulder socket back into that, um, you know, into that, you know, I guess your shoulder uh, socket itself, if you're packing it hard back against your scapula and putting extra pressure on that labrum, it really starts to aggravate that. Uh, So learning to shoot you know, with proper technique, I call it a T formation. I tell people the best way to practice um, perfect archery technique is simply to just stand up, you know, stand up with your shoulders kind of back, you know, good posture. You feel, take a deep breath in. You feel like, you know, your chest is, is got air in it. Your shoulders are back. You're standing proud your hands are down by your sides and then simply lift your thumbs up with your arms out to where they're level with your shoulders. And then if you take, if you're a right-handed archer, take your right hand and just bend your elbow so your right hand can touch the center of your chest. And honestly, if you're in that position right there, that's perfect archery technique. Um, it's simply a T formation where you've bent your drawing arm at the elbow in. And obviously if you're shooting a handheld release, you can invert that hand to where it's up on your face and that's perfect technique. It's really that simple. And that's what you want to have when you're at full draw. Now, if you think about standing up and having your hands down by your side and then going through this motion of drawing a bow a lot of people are trying to push pull they also hitch at the waist the shoulder socket comes up and presses back and you get into this kind of very unnatural bent looking t shape Um, that shape really promotes aggravation to the shoulders so you want to have a technique and you want to have a bow that's set up to where again all you have to do is stand up proud raise your hands up from your sides to where they're level with your shoulders look towards your bow hand bend your elbow so that your release hand is in that is perfect technique and if you can have a bow that fits you that way so that that front shoulder can be out and down you're going to have much less pressure pushing back on the labrum and promoting aggravation. So really take pictures of yourself and look at what you look like when you're in your full draw position, because if you can see your front shoulder is pressed back against your back, if you can see the front shoulder is actually higher than your rear shoulder, if you can see that you have a high front shoulder and then your elbow goes down beneath your shoulder and then back up to your wrist, all that is technique that's really going to aggravate the front shoulder, the the shoulder, the front shoulder. Um, When it comes to your drawing shoulder, normally you have to have some type of an injury back there 
um, to kind of promote aggravation from pulling the bow. Most of the time, neck impingement, shoulder impingement, all that's going to happen more so from the position of the front shoulder more than the rear shoulder. Um, and so from there, if your technique is correct, then when it comes to maintenance that you do to the shoulders or maintenance that I do to the shoulders, what I'll tell you is even though I have torn labrums, um, if I build the good thing is my rotator cuffs are all intact. I don't have any type of rotator cuff damage. And if you do, the rotator cuff is a little bit more problematic than a labral tear. Um, and luckily, I don't have any type of uh, rotator cuff tears at all. My, my muscular structure is still very much intact. Previously, when I had my shoulder surgery, I did have uh, multiple tears from my shoulder, my bicep, and my pec in different areas. And where those were reattached, um, all that's still really good. And what I found is if I continually keep my shoulders strong, then the strength of those rotator cuffs and the str overall strength of the socket system helps stabilize the shoulder to where I don't really have that much issue even though I've got torn labrums um, so I have to stay on top of strength in the front shoulder now when I was hunting a lot since you know really mid-August is when I started and once I started hunting the more I got for I should say the further I got away from from my starting point was also a little bit further away. I was getting away from when I had been working out. I started to feel shoulder pain and started to like wake up and have my shoulder hurting me to where I was having to try to move it around and, and get mobility within it. I felt like I was at the point where I was wanting to start taking Advil and stuff like that. And then I just realized, okay, duh, you're neglecting, you're neglecting your, your physical fitness to where one you're keeping that shoulder mobile and then two you're also keeping the shoulder strong to where you're not relying on that humerus pushing back in the socket where you have the overall strength of the shoulder to maintain that stability and not putting so much pressure on the labrum so then i really made it a point to do some movements to where my shoulders were actually able to get some type of a, a mobility and some type of a strength exercise to keep that going. So those things are, um, one of them is I actually have some center mass bells from Sornex. It's, you know, it kind of looks like a cannonball, but there's handles inside of that cannonball. It's like a hollow cannonball with a, a handle in there. And so I had some of those that were in my trailer that I was pulling around to my different hunts. And I would just really focus on front raises, lateral raises, and then kind of like windmills, just moving that around with that lower weight, just keeping a lot of mobility and slow moving strength within that socket. Another one that I would do um, when it comes to 
actual stretching would be hangs at least once a day i would try to find something i could jump up on and grab onto and for three times i would just hang as long as i could and just really try to relax my shoulder system and my back and my lats and just let my body weight just pull down and elongate that socket and for me i could definitely hear cracking and popping and kind of realignment and readjusting as that was stretching out and this is all critical because one of the worst things that i've dealt with in relation to shoulders other than when i completely detonated mine you know four or five years ago is when i start to when i start to get like a frozen shoulder i I have only had it completely frozen once but if i start to get to the point where you can tell when you're trying to move your elbow around the whole scapula is moving on your body rather than your your humerus or your arm moving within the socket if it starts to get to the point where your shoulder is guarding and it's it's so tense around that shoulder system to where you're not able to freely move your arm that's an indicator that it's starting to freeze up and that 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 causes a lot of problems and it prevents you from being able to to properly strengthen it as well and when that starts to happen you really have to focus on maintenance of you know of that shoulder system and get the mobility back in it again to where you have the range of motion that you need so that then you can work on some of those strength exercises so um, sometimes it really takes the right masseuse to get in there and break that that scar tissue down and start to manipulate that shoulder to where it can get moved around and start to have some freedom again Um, so mine really started to seize up kind of post tack events so for about three weeks i was going in twice a week and just only having um, a massage therapist focus just within um, that scapular system you know just working on that range of motion and then from there the hangs are really critical just you know elongating yourself and trying to to hang and get that get that thing stretched out Um, another one is lying on my back and i'll have my elbows pretty much almost like a t formation like i'm telling you if you lay on your back in a t formation and then what i would do is i would put a towel a rolled up towel right underneath my elbow and I would hold like a can of soup or something like that and just let my hand lay back to where it's like head height and it would just be stretching that rotator out to where I could let my hand go all the way down to the ground with holding that little bit of weight and just stretching it out and that in itself would really help and then when i was in that same position i could just take my arms they'd be laying back my hands would be holding those soup cans laying on the floor and then i would turn them upwards to where they're straight up in the air and then lay them back down and i would just sit there and just do 
take a couple minutes to just do some repetitions like that as well. And for me, those are the critical things that really help me is just that stretching. And if you're someone that's into weights or into physical fitness, the one thing I'll tell you that was a life changer for me um, was just the importance of stretching immediately following a set. So regardless of what type of muscle you're working or muscle group you're working if you stretch that same muscle group immediately following a set then you quickly start to maintain or even in a lot of cases increase the amount of mobility um, within that socket or within that muscle group depending on what you're working out on Um, and it was critical because for me just the way my natural posture is um I know that a lot of PT doctors have told me, you know, don't do any type of like chest movement because your shoulders are already rolled forward because, you know, the way your anatomy is built and your chest like has more strength. You don't need to put more strength there. And I honestly don't feel like I'm that strong in my chest. I just feel like I'm, I feel like I'm stronger in my back if I'm honest, but I do roll forward naturally with my posture. So to get that stretch, I have to like, if I do some type of a chest exercise, um, which I limit the amount that I do now, but I'll definitely get into my um, cage system and I'll really lay back and stretch my arms back or like a doorway type stretch to, to stretch my pecs out as well in my whole front chest and then again with the shoulders just learning you know how to hang and and let that shoulder system relax to where that'll move out and then I also started traveling with um, a lacrosse ball and just really taking a few minutes every night and putting that thing against the wall and just digging it into the back of my scapula into the places where I'm sore and tender and just trying to keep that scar tissue broke apart. And that in itself just helps you have the mobility that you need in that front shoulder. Now there's a ton of good uh, videos and information out there on you know top exercises for shoulders um one person i would recommend you uh following is uh sam pogue on instagram he was he was someone who worked with me back when i was um going to on it and he had a really good um he had a bunch of really good mobility things. And actually I did a really cool series, which is probably a good time. I did a, a little video with Sam when I went to the total archery challenge in Colorado, we did a little thing on simple workouts you can do on the road when you have limited, you know, equipment, but you also want to have something that kind of gets you, gets you warmed up and maintain strength while you're on the road, whether it be on a hunt or even, you know, on a tournament series. So I'll try to go ahead and launch that as well. So you guys can pick up some little tidbits from there and some of the, you know, some of the mobility and and body manipulation techniques that Sam has me do that just helps you really just helps you stay flexible 
overall. And when you do that, then the shoulder system just works so much better and you don't have the pain. For me, when I neglect mobility, that's when pain follows, especially in the shoulders. All right, next question is up or maybe it's upper peninsula underscore bow hunter. So he says, um, I love processing my own deer, but the one thing I struggle with is how picky should I be with the grind pile? I'm sometimes disgusted at how much I think I'm wasting and wonder if I'm being overly picky. Um, I know it'd be difficult to explain, but maybe someday you can do a food segment on your website. Thanks for all you do. So yeah, there's a couple things here. One, um, I've always been a little bit, um, I've probably been a little bit over the top on, um, kind of on my breakdowns, especially in the field, how much I try to get off there. And obviously the more you try to get off of that, you know, of that carcass, the more that you're going to have that is very specific to grind. Um, so there's a couple things there. One, I, what I don't put in my grind, my grind really is there's, um, in the, in the rear quarter, when you kind of break down, there's several muscle groups in that rear quarter. So normally if I'm going to pull the whole rear quarter off that bone, I'll normally just make one incision down the inside and then I'll kind of try to just use my knife around that bone and try to like peel that whole big rear quarter chunk off that's kind of between the pelvis and the knee. And once I have that big chunk off, um, you can kind of, when you lay it out, you can see there's really like three or four kind of different sections of thicker meat that's in there. And there's kind of some some tissue that that separates those. And if you kind of take a, your knife and you and you start to you know slice, kind of the in between that that fascia that's between the those bigger chunks. As you do that and you kind of peel those separate pieces apart, you'll find a few glands that are in the rear quarters. That I always make sure I get those glands out, and then there's also some glands that are up in that neck meat too, um, that you want to make sure you don't put in the grind. Um, but other than that, for my wild game, I personally don't add any type of like beef or pork fat to my grind at all. Um, so I personally just try to get the main, get the glands out and try to get the main tendons out. Or if you have any of that thicker, uh, fat tissue that you can tell is kind of, you know, more of a yellow color, um, or some of the harder tendon stuff, you know, I'll try to get that out before the grind. Um, but other than that, when it comes to like how picky I am of like what, you know, how much meat, I, I guess, I'm worried about wasting, so to speak. For me, what I've learned is if you slow broast something, a lot of that tissue and stuff that uh, that many people worry about, you know, should I grind this or that's too that's too chewy or too, you know, too chunky. Those types of cuts like that, I'll actually 
put into a different bag that's not necessarily going into the grinder and i'll just call them i'll just put like you know braise on the the bag or slow cook on the bag and for that all those types of pieces i always just do like a forward sear you know just a hot flash sear um in olive oil or butter kind of on each side just to slowly brown it on each side or quickly brown it on each side and then i put it into a huge cast iron pot with about a cup of bone broth and seasoning i'll put the lid on it and then i'll wrap that pot up really good in aluminum foil and so that way all that moisture is just completely in there and i'll normally cook it at about 180 to 200 degrees for about 24 hours on the traeger and like if you go to i'm sure it's on the the website if you go to knockonarchery.com there was a, a slow cooked elk neck recipe in the the technique is the same but for those braise parts that's what i do because the slower you cook it those tendons and some of that cartilage it just starts to jelly and it starts to break down and it starts to just actually dissolve into kind of the liquid and you know and just that i don't know it's not like a gravy but it's just all the sauce that's in there and it just becomes this like really super tender like an awesome pulled pork butt type texture and it'll just break down in there so if you're worried about like having quote unquote you know better cuts of of pure meat in your grind you can do that but don't be afraid to like take other pieces like for me i don't worry about grinding the neck and sorting through the tendons and and the different cartilage and everything that's in those huge neck chunks i'll just slow cook that whole thing down over the course of a full day just low and slow don't open it up make sure it's fully sealed and just you know low and slow and let it totally break down and then for me personally once it gets to about that 24 hour mark where i know it's going to be ready once i open it up i'll grill some some like purple onions peppers jalapenos i'll grill those and then don't grill them too much just grill them to where you can you can see they're they're starting to soften but they're also still really crispy and fresh and then slice those up in in slices and that way when you open the lid to that to that roast that you've got in there or that that braising all those braising pieces you can open it up you can take two forks and just shred all that up into just this awesome you know perfectly pulled pork looking dish and then put all those veggies in there and then if you want you know you can add a little bit more seasoning or add some of your favorite barbecue sauce in there and stir it up put the lid back on it and let it just simmer in that plate you know let the veggies simmer in that flavor for about another 30 minutes and that is always a crowd pleaser uh for anywhere i go it's it's honestly something to where you can leave that out um you can leave it in the grill if you turn the grill all the way down you can leave that pot in there with the lid on and 
if you're at a hunting camp where people are coming and going all day, you can just say, Hey, there's, you know, there's pulled venison in the, in the Dutch oven or in the pot that's in the, on the Traeger. Uh, just feel free to go out there and use it whenever you can get whatever you want. Just put the lid back on and people can just come and go and you'll be amazed at how fast that totally empties out and everyone destroys it. And you really don't have any type of guilt because you're utilizing all that stuff and it breaks down. Awesome. In my opinion. All right. Next question is Emmy. I don't know. M. No. M. Ned Mitch. I don't know how, what you guys come up with, but that's what you got. So is asking the benefit of using a fixed site like the fast steady NE versus a dovetail mount style site. Um, is there any other benefit for one over the other? Um, other than solid peep acquisition. So that's kind of two questions. There's, in my opinion, there's certainly a benefit over to one and it doesn't relate to peep acquisition. So what, what they're trying to say by peep acquisition and what one of the benefits is to a fix or a, a movable position site is that that site, the further you take it away from you the smaller it's going to start to appear so if you want to get a perfect front sight rear sight sight picture so if you want to have a perfect peep to front scope match sometimes you have to take that thing depending on your peep size you might have to move it out further away from you or sometimes you may bring it in closer and you'll get an absolute perfect sizing now, for me, what I don't like um, about a front sight that's removable is the way that a lot of the sight systems work right now, and I know this from back when I shot Target. Honestly, when I shot Target, I still kept my sights close, closer to my riser than what, than what a lot of people did. Um, because I found that the further out I put it away from my bow, the more it magnified any type of torque that I had. And I had better left to right margin of error. So I technically I had way better left to right groups when I kept my sight closer to my bow. And honestly, this kind of directly connects to something that you call torque tuning, which is a process of taking your arrow rest and moving it further back behind the riser, and then also taking your sight and moving it forward or back off the riser to where, where that arrow is sitting on that arrow rest, which is behind your hand. There's a sweet spot where your sight, which is in front of your hand, if you have any variation in torque, if the distance of the rest that's behind you or behind your hand and the sight that's in front of your hand, there's a sweet spot to where when those distances are at the perfect combination, they counteract each other. So if you have some torque where let's say you're putting a little bit of front fingertip pressure on the riser and you're kind of turning your sight a little bit to the right when you're at full draw, your arrow rest is also 
coming back to the left. So it's doing the exact opposite because it's behind that pivot point. And so there's a, there's a, a sweet spot there where the two of them are counteracting each other almost perfectly to where your margin of error on the paper for lefts and rights are much better than when those two things are not proportioned correctly. And one is too far forward compared to the other one that's not far enough back or, you know, so forth. So I personally have always liked my sight a little bit closer because I don't shoot my arrow rest way back. I shoot it, you know, I do shoot it behind my hand, but not way back. Um, so what I found is I just try to shoot a peep sight. I adjust the diameter of my peep so that I get a perfect front sight, rear sight acquisition. And the other thing that's awesome about the, especially the model that you talked about, the spot hogs is they do have different size aperture rings. And so for the NE, it comes with, with two, um, for the single or for the dual pin, it comes with two. Um, you get a singular white ring, which I really like the contrast of a black peep and a white front ring. And then you also get the multi, um, the multicolor front ring that you can screw on there that has white, green, white. Now for the five pin, you get multiple options as well. And what's nice is if for some reason you put the solid white on there, which is the one I personally prefer, um, and your peep is either too big or slightly too small, and you feel like you're kind of in between peep sizes to where you can make that work, then you could go to the other ring and then you have multiple rings so that you're kind of able to um, to center maybe the middle ring or maybe the outer ring, um, which works awesome. Now, what I like about a perfectly fixed sight is that as you tighten it down, it just snugs up to the riser. There's no like variation in how that ex how that's extending off the the bow itself. Now on a dovetail design, when if you really start to crank down on your tightness or your screw, that's essentially there's a screw going onto that extension bar. There's a screw that either comes at it from the top or a lot of times they come at it from the bottom. And, you know, you can imagine the harder you twist that thing, it's going to be putting pressure in one spot of that extension bar. And so the opposite side of that extension bar is going to react to that pressure. So the tighter you would push on the, let's just say the top right side of that extension bar, it's going to want to kick that extension bar up slightly. Now, because it's in that dovetail channel, it has limitations to how much it can move, but it certainly does move. And there is tolerance inside of that. So back when I shot, um, target archery, I would always keep my sights closer so that when I had them in my case, I didn't have to remove my sight off my bows. They were literally like tightened down as tight as you could possibly tighten them. And a lot of times if they just seized up in there from, you know, from corrosion, I was totally cool with that because I didn't like any movement. 
So I just liked it fully tightened down on there to where I didn't, you know, take it off, slide it out. Because if you do that, those are the times where when you go someplace and you put your sight back on, all of a sudden you realize like, oh, I'm hitting an inch and a half right, or I'm inch, I'm hitting, you know, just a half inch low, or I'm hitting the bottom of the dot or the top of the dot at every distance. And it could just be the variation that you have in the pressure of tightening it down more so than anything on your bow moving nothing on your bow or your tune is moved it's the fact that you've actually moved the most valuable thing on your on your bow which is that sight you know it's that's why i've never been a fan of you know if someone needed to remove an arrow rest and put it back on the likelihood even even on like a dual tap design like we have um on the ntn and embark models there's still enough variation in how that screw goes through that hole on that air on that arrow rest to where you could potentially not get it in the right spot and a little bit goes a long way in archery so i'm just a big fan of direct mount you know direct positive locking mount i don't like um, pressure coming at something from the top or the bottom to where it would cause it to to lift or have a slight variation in how it's mounted so my personal preference is a direct mount system that is a hundred percent secure in lockdown which is why we went with the fast eddy uh as the baseline model for what is now the the ne model all right hopefully that helped you out so next question here is what to do after the rut to find a mature deer this is something that we kind of touched on just a little bit um in the last podcast but i can tell you for me during the late season um i'm always i'm always trying to like think ahead of I I love the late season so I'm always trying to think ahead of you know one where am I going to be hunting two what's going to be the draw um so for late season nasty weather and food are your your biggest your biggest compliments that you can have to having a successful season you want to make sure you've got some type of a food source preferably the bedding is is far enough away to where you can get in there and get to it without bumping stuff because during the late season deer certainly can bed much closer to the food source and oftentimes within sight of the food source so if you're not able to to approach or get out of there without being seen it can be problematic So I'm always thinking ahead of what is a setup that I've got for late season? Like, what is my setup? And then also before here, before gun season starts, I always get brand new uh, cards and batteries out in my cameras to where I can monitor what is going on without having to step foot out there. So um, on all of the food sources that I have permission on to go to or food sources that I've put in myself, there is a camera there and all I'm monitoring is which one is getting ready to, to have a mature deer come to it. 
because the late season, in my opinion, is just an awesome time to hunt. And I've told people, and I said this in the last podcast, you know, if you're trying to wait to draw this unbelievable tag just during the rut, don't be afraid of looking at the late season opportunity and is that a different tag and two can you find a food source because if you can and you can somewhat work on a shorter schedule of looking at the 10-day weather and realizing holy crap there's a big weather system coming in there's finally going to be snow hitting uh you can get to that food source and probably have an amazing hunt I certainly see the highest concentration of animals in one place during the late season. Um, And mature deer are going to be there because, listen, the mature deer are going to be the ones that have really been getting after it for breeding. And depending on your your buck to doe ratio, which if you're not in a place that's really managing for, you know, closer to a one to one ratio, there's a really good chance that those bucks are just hustling to try to breed everything and they're not going to get everything bred and some stuff's going to come back in later in the season. And when those does, the, the late uh, estrus does come in, they're also having to go to food source to generate that heat and to give themselves, you know, enough fat and nutrition to get through the cold winter. So they're coming to that food source. And if they're hitting that second um, estrus, then they're going to have that mature buck with them anyway. And honestly, the biggest, the biggest deer that I've ever seen uh, is a buck that, came out on like it looked like a yearling doe it was one of the smallest does i've ever seen but he was a hundred percent locked onto her she was moving around she was acting like she was going to be coming into heat and this was like late late december january and still to this day it was like the biggest deer i've ever seen and it was um it was just on this late season uh hunt that was on actually it was a green plot i think i think they were just in some winter wheat that was um barely coming up and they were just hitting that hard and i can tell you from from my cameras right now that i have out um i'm seeing more deer go to the green food sources right now than to the grain um it's been cold here a little bit it hasn't been bitter. It hasn't been miserable, but it's been cold. And I'm seeing way more deer in general going to like clover and winter wheat than I am going to standing grain right now. And I think once snow hits and I think there becomes ground cover over that green, I think that's going to flip. But since there's, there's exposed ground and there's green vegetation there, I feel like the deer trying to get that while they can and that's really the dynamite dynamite spot. Now, if you don't have the ability to hunt on a food source, then the next thing that you have to do is you have to find where that bedding is. And honestly, it's easier to get into the bedding than it is to the food source right now because during the late season, stuff continually feeds on that food source. So a lot of times there's stuff on those food plots continually throughout the day 
Um, obviously it fills up, it's totally full in the morning and they fill up more in the evening, but there's also randoms throughout the middle of the day. So if I were to hunt a food source right now, I'm going to try to go into that food source at like 1130 in the morning when I feel like it's least likely that anything's there yet. And I'll spend that three or four hours of not seeing much of anything to where it'll just totally start to fill up in the evening. And then during the late season, I try to work with a partner that we take turns to where I always have what I call a bump. So I'll have someone that's close by that can actually drive in with a tractor or a vehicle and and bump those deer out of that food source and let me just get right into the vehicle and it drive away rather than me have to climb down and exit a, exit a food source that has a high concentration of deer there. So a lot of times the people that I hunt with will just alternate hunts to where we can give each other bumps and it works really well because the deer don't see you um, coming and going and you're laying down much less scent as well. But there's also been years where all the deer ate every drop of food that I had available by the time late season opened back up. And in those cases, I actually just did a few full day hunts in that bedding area to where I went into the bedding area into the dark did an all day hunt and had a really good hunt because they're in the food source. They come back to the bedding and a lot of times, you know, they'll be in that bedding almost most of the day. And then they, they obviously leave to go to the food source. And once you kind of see that whole uh, bedding area evacuate, you can actually then leave there um, and have way less impact than if you were coming and going from the food source. So that's kind of my strategy and something that's worked really well for me. So hopefully it works well for you also. Uh, let's see, Rob Pags 15 saying best way to create an accurate sight tape for a multi-pin slider. So what I do, what a lot of people do on multi-pins is one, a lot of people naturally don't center the same all the time. So when we talk about front sight, rear sight acquisition, you have two circles, right? You have a circle that's your peep sight. You have a circle in the front that's your scope housing or your pin housing. Those two circles always have to be perfectly circled. They, I mean, like a perfect eclipse. There can't be like a quarter moon showing or an eighth of a moon or a sliver of the moon showing to the right, to the left, to the up or down. It can't. It always has to be a perfect eclipse. And then for me, if I'm using a multi-pin, like, you know, with the five-pin um, NE sight, I will then adjust the whole pin housing, move it down, and I'll only use my bottom pin for all distances past what that bottom pin would be set at. So, on my site, I have what's called a home base, which is where my site needs to be positioned to where my top pin's 20, my bottom pin is 60. And that's marked with an H, home base. Then from there, I'll roll that dial down and then I'll always center my peep and site housing perfectly eclipsed. 
And then I always only use that bottom pin for every distance that'll be past 60. So I'll, you know, move that whole housing to a position where I'm able to use that bottom pin and it'll hit 70 or I can go all the way out to 110. Now for me, what I do is I'll take, um, I'll actually trim a blank piece of that sight tape that comes with the sight, or you can use like masking tape, something that's a little bit easier to remove and put it on your your wheel or if you have a regular site that just moves up and down put it on the side and find where your home base is mark it with a pencil and then go back you know to 70 yards and adjust that wheel make sure you perfectly eclipse front sight rear sight use your bottom pin find the place where you're hitting dead center at 70 give yourself a little mark on that tape of where your 70 is and then go back to 80 give yourself a mark where your perfect spot is and then again just keep coming back but you have to center front sight rear sight at all those distances what i see people do is they naturally their subconscious tries to center that bottom pin in the center of the peep sight more so than centering housing housing people will start to want their subconscious will want to center the pin in their rear sight versus, you know, essentially centering front sight, rear sight and having your pin way towards the bottom of that sight picture. You really have to do it that way. If your sight tape is going to be a, a gradual growth um, to where all of your distances are continually, you know, coming apart equally as you, as you go further out and as the arrow loses velocity, you'll have to shoot it for a little bit more of a gap. When people start to center their pin in their peep and try to perfectly center the, a pin in their peep at every different distance, your scale will start to look pretty jacked up. And for me, I don't really like that. I would way rather have a consistent scale that every distance is a little bit longer than what the next one is. You know, your gaps just gradually get bigger and bigger and bigger. And then what you can do is you can remove that piece of, uh, keep your sight, like take your sight, move it back to home base, lock it into position, take that piece of masking tape or, you know, if you trim just a piece of white uh, sight tape, like off the edge of the packet that comes with your sight, just lightly remove that. And then you're going to have what I, you know, you're going to have a scale. And to me, I call that a temporary scale. And then what I'll do is I'll take that temporary scale and I'll kind of put it on all the predetermined scales that come with your site. So if you're ordering a the knock-on NE site, you actually get two different sets of scales that go to the longer yardages. One will be uh, green and one's red for the in-between lines. You can pick whichever one you want. And I'll just kind of move them down those different scales with my temporary piece of tape that I have. And I'll find a scale to where my 70 to 110 match up perfectly. And then what I'll do is I'll trim that out so that I have, you know, that 70 to the 110, but I also have all the individual perfectly marked yardages for the in-between yardages. I'll trim that out. And then what I'll do is um, 
I'll then put that onto that site to where you're able to have perfect site tapes that are on those marks. Um, now, one thing I'll do as well, if you if you want to, you can take your temporary site tape and you can trim it to where it's very thin to where when you put it on that round wheel, half of the wheel is still exposed and half of the wheel has the tape on it. And that way, when you're marking it with a pencil, you'll still have little temporary pencil marks on your wheel itself and not just on the masking tape. So when you peel that off and you go to lay your new one on, you can also kind of still see that little half of the pencil mark that's actually on your wheel to where you can have double confirmation that you line that up the right way. But that's how I do it. I make a temporary tape uh, to where I just get my, my marks on my own for everything past home base or past 60. And then I'll find a scale that matches uh, my temporary marks. And that's what I go with. All right. So let's see here. Next question is going to be from Brent Hoffman, 13, saying, uh, I'd like to talk about the importance of broadhead tuning, not just field points through paper and calling it good. So, yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot that goes into tuning and, you know, it's, it's a rabbit hole that is endless. And the crazy thing about archery is in my opinion, anytime you change anything, you change everything. And a lot of what I personally shoot is over years and years of trial and error. And it's over years of trying things to where maybe Although I wanted to use something, there was frustration with with using that. And it just got to the point where it's like, these are the things that I know work in relation to, honestly, this question of, you know, how likely am I to get this broadhead to fly the same as my field points? Because what I will say is you can certainly get a broadhead to fly like your field points but it's very rare that a broadhead is exactly the same size as a field point and because it's not if it's longer it's got more surface area and if you're someone that likes shooting longer distances more surface area equals more drag and more drag is going to be a variable and again my statement that I tell people is anytime you change anything, you change everything. So if you change a variable, it will have a cause and effect. So just shooting a a field point through paper does not mean your bow is set up and ready to shoot any type of broadhead. Now, what I will say is there's a lot of things that quickly start to change those results too. What type of broadhead are you talking about? There's a lot of broadheads out there that look really cool and do some damage that are just not simply not going to be easy to tune. There's going to be sacrifice because what I'll tell you is 
the more ballistic friendly you want your projectile to be, the less likely you're going to be able to tune something that has a lot of front surface area or a lot of front cutting area. So if you have this massive front broadhead that has wind channels and a lot more surface area, but you don't want something that's going to have a lot of variation shooting longer distance. Like if you're out West and you have to shoot with wind or, you know, if you have to shoot something that's at a longer distance, or if you're having to shoot at something that's moving faster or more likely to move fast to where you would really like an arrow that is faster. For example, if I'm hunting antelope, I would certainly like a faster arrow than if I were hunting elk, just because I know how fast antelope can move and they're jumpier and they're twitchier. So I do like to have an arrow that's a little bit faster. I would love to have an arrow that's at least in the 280s, you know, for antelope. Whereas if I did have an arrow that was shooting 270 for elk, it wouldn't bother me. Um, or, you know, even slower than that, it wouldn't be the end of the world because elk aren't naturally jumpy. Um, you're also probably going to shoot them at a much closer distance. So because of that, I would be more, way more likely to shoot a broadhead that maybe it did have more front cutting area. Um, you know, maybe it was, if it was a fixed blade broadhead, maybe it it would be a, a bulkier broadhead. But, you know, if I was shooting a a heavy arrow with a bigger fletch on it that stabilized that broadhead properly and it flew good and I knew that it was going to be adequate at the distances I was needing it at, I would be fine with that. Whereas you can't go and hunt an antelope out west and know that you're going to have a shot that's over 60 yards and go out there with... um, a bigger fletching or, you know, a four inch fletch or a feather or something that can steer, I would be way more likely to have a broadhead that was more compact, allowed me to shoot a little bit faster arrow, and then also allowed me to shoot a more compact fletch to where I had less drift horizontally for a crosswind or less likely to be affected by, you know, a headwind or a tailwind. So there's just all these variables that add in. And for me, what I keep going back to is some of the best flying fixed blade heads that I've found are the ones that are more compact and more stable, especially when you add in the variables of, you know, crosswinds, longer shots, deceleration, what do you need for speed in relation to how fat the likelihood of that animal being reactive and moving, you know, am I wanting something to where if I misjudge it two yards, it's a full miss, you know, those types of things are all these factors that come in. So for me, I just keep going back to a head that allows me, I like, I guess for me, I really like devastation if I'm going to shoot something and if I'm going to make a decision to, to like put an arrow into something, I want to recover that. And I know for me, the more, the most damage you can do is better when it comes to recovery, you know, and there's certainly times where you can make a perfect hit 
and it doesn't matter what you shoot you could have you know a half inch cut fixed blade head and it would work great but there's also times where if they are reacting or moving or if you didn't judge the wind slightly um to the correct you know drift and you have an impact that is two inches too far back um which I was on a deer hunt with a with a large group of friend, a large group of friends, and um, there was a couple hits where when you saw it, you thought perfect shot, perfect, and then you play it back and you realize like, oh man, maybe that's a little bit far back, and you realize what two inches can do, and especially with deer that are reacting really fast. Um, two inches can do a lot and I can tell you that for sure there were two animals that were shot to where if they would have had a regular fixed blade inch and a quarter broadhead especially if it was just like a two-bladed style head that it would have been a very different scenario of the ability to recover that animal versus pushing a two-inch tripan through through something it just there's a big difference and for me i just feel like the broadhead that's that's given me the best pros versus cons um are gonna be like the tripans and the no collars that i've shot now i do like a muzzy trocar um there there's a lot that are out there on the market that are good if you like a fixed blade head but me personally i feel like unless you're shooting shorter draw low poundage where you really have to worry about penetration i feel like i don't know i just like i like the ballistics that go along with the two heads that i pick versus ballistics that go with others and if you pick other broadheads you certainly have to do more than shoot it through paper because shooting it through paper and seeing what a field point does is totally different than what something will do if you know if you have some type of surface area attached to the front of that projectile and honestly the bigger it is the crazier it starts to become like i remember shooting a fixed blade head and i won't name the brand but there's a fixed blade head that i shot years ago um that i really liked and it flew awesome you know it was it was a you know i won't say the name because it'll give it away but there was a a standard version and it was an awesome fixed blade head had replaceable blades it shot great but they also some people are like i want a bigger cut one so they made essentially the same head but it had bigger blades that mounted in there to where you could put these other blades in there to make it a magnum and once you made it a magnum the blades were bigger they were a little bit steeper but there was just more surface area and it did add i think it added maybe about 25 grains so you could get that same broadhead but if you went to the magnum instead of it being 100 it was 125 and what i can tell you is it was really hard even for me to get that particular broadhead to fly well once you went to those big front blades and it was like one of those deals where even when i talked to the company i said man these are these are cool but 
they honestly to get an inch and a three quarter fixed blade head to fly i said your your fletchings have to be massive and you know and they pretty much just said yeah i mean kind of the intention is it for these are like 25 yards or less and so dang i mean that's telling you right out of the gate that even they know they can't perfectly tune something that has that much front surface area and a lot factors into that now if you're willing i personally feel like some of the people that are getting these larger cut um fixed blade heads to fly well a lot of them are getting them to do that when they go with extremely heavy arrows that are essentially more stable but they're also much slower and you know you just this all kind of relates to the faster something's going the more critical it is that it's stable you know if you look at a drag car um that's super light and you know and shaped incorrectly you're not going to be able to keep it on the on the track it has to have a certain type of size to where it's able to go at that speed and keep going straight so there's this there's this constant give and take it's like yeah you can say this arrow shoots unbelievable and it'll pass through anything you know and it'll it'll go through anything like butter and it's a big cut but you're also shooting 240 feet a second there's no way that that me personally i would want to go out shooting something that i have to worry about every time i pull back on it that i need to range it and know exactly whether it's 35 or 36 and a half yards otherwise my likelihood of injuring that animal is totally different than if I was out there shooting 285 and I know that I could shoot pull back and if something's 36 and a half and I use a 35 yard pin I'm still half the margin of miss is what I would if I had to shoot something that slow and stable so you really have to do your homework if you're someone that that loves really high foc they you you love a certain broadhead that's a fixed blade head that has a larger cut and you want to see a perfect pass through every single time then that's cool but just make a hundred percent sure that you're not just shooting through paper and saying okay i got a bullet hole this is good to go it'll hit the same you have to you have to get a target that's specific for practicing with broadheads you need to buy a pack of broadheads that's specific to you shooting them and and knowing where they are and sighting in with those broadheads and then going from there. And most likely, if you choose something that has much more front surface area on that projectile, there's a good chance that you're also going to have to do a lot more homework when it comes to arrow spine and how that arrow spine is perfectly matching your setup to where how that arrow is coming out of your bow and how it's stabilizing um how that affects the type of projectile that you have on the front it, the most common thing that i tell people is you know if you take your hand and you stick it out your window going 30 miles an hour 
and you kind of just have it out there and you move it up or down, it just feels like you're moving your hand up or down in the wind. If you're going 60 miles an hour and you turn your hand up or down, you can feel your hand want to plane up and shoot up straight. Or if you turn it down, it wants to shoot down to the ground. And that's the same thing that's going to happen with a broadhead that's on the front of your arrow. All right, let's see here. Oh, well, we'll get this next question. This will be our last question for this podcast. And then I'll reboot and bring you guys another one tomorrow. But this last question is from Chris Wambiki. Uh, he's saying, or maybe it's Wambiki. I'm not sure how you say it, Chris. I probably butchered that. Sorry. But your question is shooting in the wind. How much is too much? How do you gauge how much to can't or lead? Can't your bow is pretty much what you're saying. Can't your bow or lead uh, the animal? And finally, how <laughs> how did you shoot the running antelope in the double D DVD? Um, so, yeah, honestly, what I love about shooting a lot is the more you shoot, the more you learn. And what I think is so critical about people getting involved with archery year round. And honestly, what I love about the total archery challenge is it's a perfect event that gives you hunting like scenarios and hunting like things. And also there's no score. So you can, you can, learn on these courses so if you step up and you there's a 60 yard antelope downhill and there's this crosswind coming across and you're thinking okay where do i hold on this animal you're able to make a shot and if you know you made a good shot and you miss and you're like holy cow i still i still barely hung the brisket the other thing you can do is like take a look at your phone and see what the wind is doing right then. And if you see like, Oh, okay. It says that there's a 10 mile an hour wind today. Don't be afraid to make another shot and say, okay, last time I aimed like liver and I barely hung the brisket. I'm going to aim on this thing's butt and see, and then make that shot and then be like, Holy cow. I had to aim on the butt and go up there and look. And you realize, okay, with this arrow setup, and granted there's not even a broadhead on it. I've got 20 inches of drift at 60 yards with a 10 mile an hour wind. The one thing that target archery taught me was how to be a better bow hunter. And I, I say that a lot and I mean it, you know, I'm a target archer to be a better bow hunter and I'm a better bow hunter because I'm a target archer. When you shoot at circles at distances. So when I shot, when I shot 3d, competition i did not learn this like i learned once i switched to full target archery shooting at circles shooting at bullseyes shooting at targets that had symmetrical rings to where when you aimed center or you aimed off that center and you, like let's say on let's say it's 70 meters i had a my bullseye down there had a yellow center then a red, then a blue, right? So you, there's all these rings. And honestly, each of those rings has two rings within that same color. So 
I would go out and because you can't take a break in a tournament because it's windy, I would have to learn, okay, if I, if I have this breeze where my flat, the flag on my target is standing up about a quarter of the way and slightly waving, I knew that with the particular setup I had and this particular arrow I had, if that happened, I would have to aim on the left edge of the gold. I would have to aim gold red line for my arrow to drift into the center of that X ring. But what I also learned was, okay, if I don't want to have to aim off of my target, how much can I tip my limb, my top limb into the wind to where I'm canting my bow into the wind to where as I'm leaning that my arrow is compensating for that wind drift and I'm able to hit center. So then what I may do is say, okay, if I've got a quarter flag, so if my flag's barely standing up and I've got a five, six, seven mile an hour variable wind, I can aim on the eight, nine line and I can hit center or I can cant my bow to where my bubble is just touching the line on the right side. So I'm canting into the wind to where I just have my bubble touching that line and boom with a five six mile an hour variable wind i'm able to to hit x's still okay well what about when that flag starts to get up to where it's starting to stand horizontally and wave and now my wind is at 10 miles an hour okay well now with this particular bow and this arrow i actually need to cant this bow to where half of my bubble is now being cut off by the line. And then, yep, my arrows are still going in the center. Or now I need to aim seven, eight line into the wind in order to drift into the center. So you just start to learn these things and you start to learn how much cant you might need, but then you also learn how much you might need to aim off. And when the wind is variable, you learn really quickly that you adjusting your sight to compensate for the wind can be dangerous because as soon as the wind slows down, well, now you've sighted in for a wind that is no longer there. So you'll miss just simply because you've re-sighted in incorrectly because there's now no wind. So you have to learn all these variations. And then on top of that, it goes deeper because if I were to shoot those events, I would always pick a projectile that was totally superior for wind, which would have been an Easton X-10, a barreled shaft, a tungsten point. I would learn how much to cut off the back. I would, sh I would play with degree of helical to where I'd have enough rotation to stabilize arrow but not too much rotation of the arrow to end up getting like a parachute effect where i'd lose accuracy at the longer distances and if i went to an event like for example a feed a field where there was an unknown distance por portion of the course to where i would have to guess distances in those situations because i was guessing distances a lot like quote unquote hunting or 3d unknown distance 3d 
you would need a faster arrow to make up for your margin of error in guessing the distance. So there were times where I'd go to a feed a field with an ACE arrow, which was still a very small micro diameter barreled shaft, but it had a much thinner wall. It was way less weight and I was shooting much faster. The difference is it would have more drift variation if there was a stiff wind because the overall weight of the arrow was so much lighter versus the X10. However, it made up for margin of error highs and lows when I had to guess distance. So I would have to learn how much drift does my ACE have inside of 60 meters or from 60 meters in how much drift does this have with those same types of winds you know variable to five or five to ten ten to fifteen and twenty and i actually have ballistic tables that show this not just for x10s or aces but also pro tours accs and different aluminum shafts and those are all based on a certain fletch or a certain point weight that I had based on that arrow that I shot. But once you change the point weight, the plot then changes again because you change your FOC, you change overall arrow weight. And so your overall arrow weight and overall surface area is a different equation factored into the wind. And that becomes something very different. So for me, a big reason why you all see me shooting setups to where it's like, I can argue why I can shoot a million different combinations all I want. If I take something somewhere, it's because I've shot it enough to where I know the math that goes with that equation. And for me personally, the arrows that we make here at Knock on Archery, the knock-on custom arrow builds are exactly what I take to the field eight out of 10 times. It's going to be that FMJ or that Axis with, for me personally, 50 grains of brass. I'm going to shoot a hundred grain head, which is compact, has low surface area, flies great. I normally shoot that four fletch with a 2.5 degree and those arrows are freaking cookie cutter. I shoot them so much that I know what they do. And if you start shooting circles at those longer distances and start to realize like, hey, this is a 10 mile an hour crosswind and I've got 10 inches of drift, that's critical. The other thing you can start to learn from your arrow is you learn, okay, you know what I'm going to do? I always have, let's just say you always shoot the, the, the knock on custom axis. Um, and you want to know, okay, if I shoot this thing at 80 yards, but I keep my sight set on 80, but I step back to 82 yards to where I'm two yards off, I'm going to shoot and see how, how much lower I am on this target and learn like, okay, if I'm two yards off, so if I range this animal 80 yards and I draw back and I see it take two steps, I'm going to be nine inches low. I mean, that's something that you have to know. But what you could also do is honestly the easy thing if you already have those arrows built, if you're wondering, well, what would happen if I had a 75 grain brass insert in here and not the 50? Well, put a 125 grain field point in there 
and go do that same test and then realize like, oh, okay, yeah, I might gain 1% FOC if I shot a 75 grain brass, but a two yard variation is now 12 and a half inches and not nine. You'd, you'd say, oh yeah, okay, I can see why he, why he's taking this pro versus this con. There's so many variations, but for me, I learn to shoot in the wind based on the fact that I've, I really stick with setups to where my setup is essentially a calculator to me to where I know what the equation is going on. And just like when, just like, even though I don't, might not have a pin for a certain distance, my likelihood of getting dangerously close to a guess based on ballistic drop is just a simple fact of I know that projectile from tens and tens and tens of thousands of arrows being shot and understanding how that particular projectile flies through that object. Um, Now, likewise, one of the things that you learn from shooting a ton of arrows and actually a tool that there used to be back in the day when I shot um, unknown 3d is there was actually like a tape series that came out that was just recordings of arrows when it would fire and how long it would take to hit the target at a certain distance. So what you learn, if you shoot a very consistent speed, which I personally really like a speed of 285, when I shoot that speed all the time, if I hear a bow go off and an arrow hit, if it's at that speed, my brain from years and years and years of shooting has a very good idea of that approximate distance. It'll be like, oh, dang, that was 50-something yards. Uh, so understanding how long that arrow takes to go from like point A to point B based on your speed, that really starts to factor in when you've seen times like the last video I posted um, that buck that came into the decoy. I was on that buck with my pin the whole time he was moving. And I knew that just based on his rate of speed and the fact that I was getting ready to shoot him at nine yards, you know, my arrow was really only going to be one second before it was there. So I was just basing the fact of how much is he moving in one second as I was following him, you know, how much is don't whack, how much movement is there going to be in there? So honestly, my lead is for something that's moving is based on that. And it's not something that I think someone who doesn't continually shoot the same thing and doesn't have super, super five figure numbers behind a certain setup would be able to just calculate it's it's almost like that's an instinct just like people that shoot trad bows and can pull back and shoot um the same sort of things happen just from the super high numbers of reps with a very very consistent setup and i feel like i don't know this but i feel like if you had a a really superior sniper they would probably have a certain caliber and a certain load to where they knew everything about that and didn't have to every time they shot 
look down and factor something in, they could be dangerously close with an on-the-fly calculation simply because they know that ballistic from so many repetitions that they understand what it's going to do. And honestly, if you're someone who changes things a lot, broadheads, fletchings, uh, arrow types, if you change that stuff a lot, it'll be hard for you to ever grasp some of that. Um, which is why I don't offer a lot of choices in relation to the custom arrows that we build, because I feel like for every person that I do a custom build for one of those two choices and the point weight will all depend on what groups best out of the bow. But that is what I put 99% of my builds in and my personal builds as well. That is my go-to and I know the ballistics and I can trust the ballistics. And if I'm ever with that person and there's wind and I kind of somewhat understand their setup and I know that projectile, I can say like, Oh, Hey, um, on this mule deer, you know, just aim, aim about five inches left or, you know, lean your bow, you know, into the wind about a quarter bubble and you'll be good to go. So that's how I do it. And with that, we're going to wrap up another knock on podcast. So I'll see you all tomorrow, friends. We're going to pick back up and get deep into some more Q and a knock on everybody. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock on lifestyle clothing, knock on archery.com. <laughs>